The following audio is from the King's Chapel. You can find out more about our church at thekingschapel.org. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to the King's Chapel. It looks like about 50% of our church just headed off to King's Kids, which is pretty amazing, pretty impressive. Uh, and I just want uh, just throw this out there. Our volunteers and King's Kids, their shirts describe something on the back, and it is the best job in the world. They say, I don't know if all of them say it, but if you could see Laura's shirt going out, it says, I teach kids about Jesus. Not her shirt, but some of the newer ones. I teach kids about Jesus. And uh, what is better than that? We are so grateful for our King's Kids volunteers teaching kids about Jesus. Um, Last week, if you were here and it was your first time here and you looked around and you're like, where is everybody? Do people go to this church? I don't know what it was like because many of us were at a men's retreat uh, last weekend. If you were at a men's, the men's retreat last weekend and you had a good time, make some noise. <laughs> I love, I love the, the response, the woo, coming from the men. It's always, <laughs> it's always fun. Um, this morning, if you could please, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 23. And if you didn't get a chance to, uh, there are sermon outlines at the back by the doors. There are also communion elements. There's a wafer and a little cup of, of juice for after the sermon, we're going to take communion together. Uh, but if you grab the sermon on, on uh, outline on your way in, you can follow along there as well. And in Acts chapter 23, as we open God's word together, we don't really have an easy task. Uh, well, I should say, I don't have an easy task in preaching this passage because apart from really careful consideration of what's in this particular passage and just this section of scripture in general as we've continued through Acts, if we don't pay close attention and really ask the Lord, show me, show me how this will apply to my life. Show me what you would about your character through this. We don't do that very intentionally. We, we may just breeze through these passages and miss what God has for us because in chapter 21 to 28 of Acts, you're aware of this now, uh, we have this large section of scripture that really could be called the sufferings of Paul or the trials Paul, because chapter after chapter, what we are going to see is Paul having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, right? That is uh, every single uh, week, unfortunately, Paul will be lied about. He'll be publicly humiliated. He'll be arrested, beaten, tried, transferred from prison to prison, and eventually beheaded in Rome. And so this is a rough section of scripture, at least for Paul. And so these passages, they're long, they're narrative in nature. They're not like the epistles or the gospels where there's just teaching point after teaching point. It's weaving together this greater story. And what we see undeniably in these narratives is the amazing power of God to work providentially and to bring good even out of the worst circumstances. To bring good even out of the worst circumstances. In these very circumstances that Paul is in, these are some of the contexts in which he writes some of the letters that we read to the different churches. And we see the encouragement that Paul feels from the presence of the Holy Spirit with him. He he writes things uh, like the letter to the Philippians or some of his writings to Timothy in Ephesus. And here's just an excerpt, one example from what's going through Paul's mind as he's imprisoned and really having a hard time from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Just one example. Verse 17 of 2 Timothy 4. He says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. These are the words of someone who has seen and been through the worst of life. Some of you have been through some pretty awful things. But what he's seen throughout that and as he looks back on his life is he sees God's strengthening hand through all of it, every step of the way. As, God's life, as Paul's life gets more and more difficult, we see how God is working out and weaving together this grander plan to bring salvation to the whole world. And we see that. We see the big picture. God's bringing salvation to the Gentiles, to the world. But what we also see, not only that, is that God is intimately with Paul in his circumstances, in his jail cell, with him present with him, providing for him, making a path for him, actively interested in Paul's life, strengthening, protecting, and guiding him until he eventually brings him home into perfect peace in heaven, in the heavenly kingdom. And and so for all of us who have lived life long enough, we know that this is what life is really like, isn't it? Like we have seasons of peace and calm and goodness and, and joy and fellowship, and we praise God for those seasons. They are so good. But We also have seasons that are full of trial and trouble and tribulation. And and a lot of life, this Christian life, is more about seeing God's hand when life is not easy. When when we don't know what's happening, when we're going through challenges. We sing these songs, wonderful songs like, How Great Thou Art. And uh, there's certain verses in it that say things like, When through the woods and forest glades I wander and and see the birds sing sweetly in the trees. (laughs) And it's like, is that what life is like? When's the last time you all did that? What are we, Snow White or something? Like, <laughs> or, or hobbits? Or I don't know. It's just like this bird singing sweetly in the trees. And uh, that's not really what life is, is like most of the time. I love that song, by the way. I'm not a how great thou art basher. Please don't uh, hear that. But I was thinking this week about how often we actually need songs and words and scriptures that are more like what we see in the Psalms in David, who often is in this place of lament, being honest with God about what he's going through, what he's feeling, and yet always, always reflecting back on how good God has been, how faithful he's been, and maybe even just for a moment, Paul, or David, excuse me, is always anchoring his hope to what he has already seen God do. And he's saying, in the midst of all this, I will take hope. I will have faith because God has done this. And that's what he does. And so I think as we sing these songs, like how great thou art, I was thinking this week about how we need verses, we need scriptures that express this tension of our lives between triumph and trial. Something like this. When breakers crash and under waves I falter, when life has cast my face into the sand, then I will cling unto the rock of ages and find my peace within his loving hand. Then sings my soul. My Savior, God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. We need, we need verses, we need uh, expression of this because this is what life is really like. How many of you, I wonder this morning, are, are walking through trials, walking through troubles that almost nobody else knows about? Like We just don't know what you're going through. If you're watching online and, and you're struggling in isolation, we don't know what you're going through. Loss broken relationships, your family uh, falling apart, persecution in in your workplace, financial hardship, stress, doubt, trouble. In the body of Christ, as as a church, we need each other. And, And so if you're struggling right now, if you're here this morning struggling, or you're watching, or you're listening later, and you're struggling, we can pray for you. We want to come 
beside you. We want to help you. You, you need to, to begin to be honest about what you're going through. But even more than that, friends, if you are going through it today, you need to know that God is with you. He's with you in your trouble. He is not far off. He hears your cries. He cares for you. He cares for you. First Peter 5 says we can cast our burden upon him because he cares for you. And so I would just invite you to consider how has God perhaps even in this moment been sustaining you? What providences has he brought along? What relationships has he brought along at just the right time? You know, what, what invitation to, to church or whatever it is? What has God done to sustain you, to show his presence with you in ways that may seem incredibly ordinary but are from his hand? Paul sees this in his life. He sees God's hand in his circumstances as they're spinning out of control. Here's, here's kind of the situation. Chapter 23, verse 10. It says, And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them. This is very serious. He's, he's the tribune, the Roman uh, military authority, is afraid that this crowd is actually going to pull Paul apart physically. He commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So, Paul, yet again, this is not, I'm not reading something we've already gone over in the past. This is just the same kind of thing happening again. Paul is before the Sanhedrin, what's supposed to be the Supreme Court, this orderly proceeding of the Pharisees and the Sadducees hearing Paul's case, and they lose it. This council erupts in fury against Paul, and once again, he barely makes it to safety. This is starting to sound pretty familiar, isn't it? But listen to what happens next. Verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. How good is that? That, that God appears, the Lord Jesus appears to Paul in some form, in some fashion, and, and reassures him, I'm not done with you yet. Your mission is not over yet. The Lord appears to Paul in the night and he says, take courage. Your mission doesn't end here. I am going to take you all the way to Rome. I think there's a message here for us. If you still have breath in your lungs, if you are here this morning, God is not done with you. You might think you're in the, in the twilight years of your ministry. You know, you're retired. You don't know how useful you are to the kingdom of God. And I, I will tell you once again, if you have breath in your lungs, God is not done with you yet. He has a mission for you to fulfill. He has one for Paul, and he reassures him. He reassures him that he will take him out of these dark circumstances to something even more. God has a plan and a mission for us to fulfill. And isn't that reassuring? He's not done with you. He has more. He has more in store for you. And as we think about Paul, we think maybe he could sit in that reassurance, like, isn't that nice? God told me I'm going to live. I'm going to go to Rome. It's all going to be good. But he's got a long way to go before he gets it, because this is the background. We're going to see the plot against Paul here, if you're following on your outlines. Verse 12, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. How frightening is that? How crazy and wicked is that? 40 men, more than 40, it says, have formed a, a lynch mob, essentially, for Paul. And they've sworn to each other that none of them will eat or drink until Paul is dead. That means they intend to get on with this quickly, right? This is, this is crazy. But even worse... 
The religious leaders approve of this insanity. Listen to this, verse 14. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune and bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So they're saying, you, council, priests, elders, we're going to tell you what to do. You invite Paul down. You tell the tribune that we have more questions to ask him, and on the way we're going to murder him. Think about this. They go to the the religious leaders of the nation, the political leaders of a nation, and they arrange a pretense for Paul to come back for questioning, but on the way they're going to murder him with impunity. Man, think of what these leaders are capable of. Think of what they they give approval to. I think that, that in this, I see a call for us to pray for our leaders, to pray that they would be godly, that they would govern wisely because the same kind of corrupt influences that are are at work in the book of Acts are at work in our world right now. You know that, right? And so for me, this is a call to pray that our government would govern wisely, that these spiritual forces of the enemy, Satan himself, is at work in this, to stir up this in these 40 and in the leaders who stand back and approve of it. What in the world? Like, how do we get here? How do the spiritual and governmental leaders of a nation become so corrupt, so wicked, that they would plot something so terrible? And what did Paul do? What did Paul do? How did we get here? I'm going to talk briefly about how we got here, about how Paul got in this situation in the first place, what's really behind the scenes going on here that gets Paul into this danger. The first thing we'll see is this, that careless words have consequences. If you're taking notes, careless words have consequences. It's been a few weeks, so I'll remind you the context of Paul's arrest. We know he's preaching salvation to the Gentiles, and this made his Jewish countrymen upset, but that's not actually why he was arrested. You know why he was arrested? Think back. Think back. He was arrested and beaten because a rumor had circulated that he had brought a Gentile, Trophimus the Ephesian, into the inner courts of the temple. This is something forbidden by Jewish law. And so what this is, is a cause, a technicality, a cause for an angry mob to arrest Paul and attempt to kill him. Do you know what's crazy, though? Did Paul ever bring Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple? No. (laughs) No, this never even happened. Paul is repeatedly threatened with murder over something that never actually happened. A rumor about Paul. A lie. A story based on some people seeing Trophimus and Paul in the city together and then, and then maybe through embellishment or through gossip spreading a story about Paul that was never true. Think about that. Paul is in prison. Paul barely escaped with his life because of gossip, because of rumors. Sometimes we think about sin and we have these categories for sin and, and, and offenses to God and, and we think of some things as sort of varsity and some things as JV of no consequence. And we see these kinds of tendencies in our own life. But I need to tell you, gossip is not a JV sin. Being careless with our words, being careless with our, our, our thoughts as we communicate them to other people is serious. Very serious. Some of you have experienced this. You've been on the receiving end of this as as your reputation and your character has been publicly smeared or your personal business has been inappropriately broadcast with devastating consequences. All because someone somewhere just couldn't help themselves. Has anything like that ever happened to you? Has anything wrong ever been said about you? And this is convicting to me as I consider this. Why? Because 
Can we be honest? I, can I be honest? I have this tendency in my heart. I wonder how many of us do this morning. A tendency to be indiscreet with my mouth or, or overly curious with my eyes and ears about the matters of, of other people's lives. James describes it this way in James 3. He says in verse 8, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Rhetorical question. Answer is no. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? No. Or a grapevine produce figs? No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So I just want to take this as a gentle rebuke to us this morning. Or if you don't like the word rebuke, a gentle encouragement to us this morning. As I preach this to myself, we have got to take care. We have got to take care that our words be sources of unity and not division. Truth and not speculation. Blessing and not cursing. And when things are off in a community, when you have a a problem with someone or, or you're suspicious of someone, we handle matters as the body of Christ whenever possible with grace, discreetly, one-on-one. We deal with matters face to face. And I know that's not always the easiest way out. What we do is we honor God by refusing to involve others in our complaints about people behind the scenes. We stop venting, joking, speculating. Far too often, anyone ever witnessed this? You've been in a Bible study and someone's prayer request is just gossip. Yeah? No? Okay. Just me? (laughs) We stop doing that. I think sometimes we make these rules for ourselves that are just not biblical. We say, no, it's okay. I can talk to my my spouse about this stuff. And then we just dump on them information about other people, speculation about other people. (laughs) It's not okay just because it's just with your spouse. And then we also have this other thing. We, uh, We carelessly throw out things that we think are okay because they're not negative. Like, I can talk about other people all I want because I'm just sharing stories. It's just funny, or this is interesting. It's not negative, therefore it it can't possibly uh, be a problem. Then it's okay, even if it may still be private information. Proverbs says that a gossip betrays a confidence. It doesn't say that a gossip says negative things about other people. A gossip betrays information that should not be told. Gossips tell the truth sometimes, don't they? And cause great damage. Proverbs 26.20 says, Without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. So are you that person who always seems to have an opinion or a thought or a story to tell about other people? If so, I'm standing in front of a giant cross here. God is full of grace toward you. God is full of mercy toward you. And the invitation of this passage, as we're confronted with what, what... Wickedness of words got Paul into this situation. It's an invitation to receive God's grace and in his kindness to repent, respond to him by repenting, to stop stop doing this. One of my personal life values is this. Many of you will know it uh, because I've said it, especially to our young adults. It goes something like this. We talk to people, not about them. We talk to people, not about them. And I can't tell you how many times I've been called out with this. Like I'm, I'm talking, having a casual conversation, and someone says, Mark, talk to people, not about them. I'm like, Thank you. 
That's what the body of Christ can do for, for one another. We can, we can admonish, we can rebuke, we can love each other in that way. Do you know why I repeat that all the time? Because I struggle with it constantly. Constantly. It's so much easier in life to just make casual conversation about other people than to talk to them. But to, to pursue unity in the body of Christ, we have got to choose the difficult thing. Paul's life is turned upside down because of a false report. How do we get here? Careless words have consequences. Secondly, <laughs> the world hates Jesus. The world hates Jesus. I know that sounds intense, but listen to what Jesus says in John 15, 8. Before he's about to get crucified, nailed to a cross, he says this, if the world hates you, talking to his disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. This is a difficult saying from Jesus, because what it indicates is that as followers of Jesus, we might be hated. Did you know that? This is the case with Paul. Ultimately, he is attacked. Uh, he is you know, put in this situation, yes, because people lied about him, because they said things that aren't true about him, uh, and not really because he's Paul, though. Ultimately, he is in the situation because of what he preaches and professes. He's hated because he follows Jesus. I mean, when we read these passages, you might think Paul's annoying. Like, you could, you could speculate that Paul was a, an obnoxious or a difficult or abrasive dude. But ultimately, he's hated because he follows Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians, he says it this way. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? That's what's going on when you represent Jesus. You are light. And darkness hates the light. Think about this. Here we have 40 men who have taken a murderous vow against Paul, not because he's broken a law, really. Not because he's preaching uh, anything. Well, here's why. Because he's preaching Christ. He's preaching Christ crucified and resurrected for all who would believe, including Gentiles. And they may not articulate it this way, but this mob is after Paul because they hate Jesus. They hate Jesus. Think about Jesus, full of, of love and compassion. He's going about healing the sick, setting free captive. Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, was brutally crucified. And as followers of Jesus, we can be sure that there are some that will hate us for what we believe. Are you prepared for that? Is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? He was worth it to Paul. Now, I know this is kind of a downer, right? But some of us are going to get rejected. Some of you will get rejected. Let that not be because you're annoying. <laughs> Let it be because you represent Jesus. Let it be because you're all about Jesus. Jesus is, is clear that if we follow him, life will not all be sunshine and flowers for, for us. We may even be hated and rejected before we're finally free one day in his presence, free from this hardship, redeemed and with him fully. Now, I know this isn't a, a, a super encouraging word, but as followers of Jesus, you need to know this. You need to know that as a representative of him, if they rejected him, they will reject you. But deep down, what's behind that is not that they're rejecting you. They're rejecting the love of God. 
They're rejecting the love of God. And when we can step outside of ourselves and say, why do they hate me? Why are they against me? And we realize that we are offering them salvation. We are offering them the love of God and representing that love. And they reject that. That should cause us to be filled with sorrow for those that would reject God's love. It should cause us to pray earnestly that they would be soft to receive his love. It should cause us to be renewed in our passion for this mission of letting people know about the the goodness and the love of God. It is a far greater tragedy that they reject God's love than that they reject you. And we've seen this in Paul. He's preaching God's love, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, and he gets viciously attacked for it. Paul didn't choose this outcome, but he finds himself in prison because of careless words and because the world hates Jesus. And now 40 hangry guys are preparing to kill him. So we see the plot against Paul, and now let's look at the providence of God. The providence of God. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. This is interesting. I don't know if it's interesting to you, but we've never heard about Paul's family at all. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Paul's got a sister in Jerusalem, and she's got a son. So Paul's got this nephew that, that just bursts on the scene. And, and Paul, though he's born in Tarsus, has apparently been educated in Jerusalem. He's got family in town, including a sister. And somehow this boy, this nephew of Paul, has caught wind of this plot to kill Paul. He's heard about this somewhere in the streets or maybe in his household, and he goes to the barracks, and he tells Paul about what he's heard. Verse 17, Paul called one of the centurions. So Paul hears this, and he says, he hears this message. There's 40 guys that are waiting to murder you, Uncle Paul. And so he, Paul's like, get over here. Get over here to the centurion. Please listen to this guy. Please take him to the tribune. He has something to tell the tribune. Verse 18, so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. Now, a lot of commentators have tried to figure out how old this kid is, and we don't really know, but the next verse, I think, indicates something. It reveals how young he, he might be. Um, Because when the centurion brings this boy, this nephew of of Paul, to the tribune, look at what happens next. It says, verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand and going outside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? The tribune takes him by the hand and walks him outside. If you have a teenage son sitting next to you, I want you to reach out and try to hold his hand. (laughs) I know there's cultural differences in, in different parts of the world. Hand-holding is, is pretty, pretty normal uh, at a lot of ages. But what this tells me is that this isn't a young adult. This isn't some, some teenager who's basically a man. This is a child. This is a, a child who has overheard something terribly, uh, possibly in the streets, in the gossip. He's like one of those Oliver Twist kids, and he's just hearing stuff on the street. Or maybe he's even heard this in his own household, as, as Paul's sister or brothers, if he has them, are talking about what's going on, what they've heard about. And, and this, this movement that's coming against Paul, he's heard of something terrible, and he goes and is brought before the tribune, and the tribune looks him in the eye. He sees this, this child, and he says, talk to me. What's going on? Verse 20, and he, he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow to ask him more questions, as though, as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. Don't be tricked. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, 
waiting for your consent. I, I don't know what this boy's face was like. I don't know. I, I, can, I can see, though. I can picture, if it were me, considering my own uncle and hearing about a, an ambush waiting to murder him, this boy's pretty upset. He, he is urgent in what he's saying. And then I want you to see the response of the tribune. Verse 22, the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one. Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. This tribune is the leader of a thousand soldiers. He is the, the highest in command in Jerusalem for the Romans. And, and notice what he does. He trusts this little boy. He trusts the testimony of this brave boy who has just told him about a violent threat against Uncle Paul. And seeing the danger that this could put this boy in, the tribune tells him, keep this a secret. And he sends the boy out. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions. So a commander of 100 and another commander of 100. And he says, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. 40 murderers is no joke. This is a, a serious threat. And a threat against a Roman citizen warrants a strong response from the tribune. But 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, that's a lot, right? I got, is that overkill? I don't know. I'm, not, I'm not, not a military guy myself. Some of you could tell me. I don't know. This is 470, 70 horses, and they are ready for battle. They're ready to go. This is like war movement during the night. A substantial force ready for battle. And at 9 p.m., that's the, the third watch, under the cover of darkness, this force rushes Paul by night on the 75-mile journey to Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. And the tribune sends this letter with him. He says, he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the, res uh, the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. He, he kind of leaves out the fact that he had Paul stretched out and was about to beat him when Paul revealed the citizenship. Anyway, leaves that out, neither here nor there. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. Picture this with me if you can. You're sleeping comfortably in your countryside farm or whatever it is, and on the road in the middle of the night, you hear a force of nearly 500 marching past your house. I think in every village there would be rumors circulating. What are the Romans doing? Is there war again in Israel? What is happening as they hear the steps, the stomps of horses, the clinking of armor and swords in the middle of the night moving right past their homes? And then in the morning they come to learn that this was all for transporting one accused criminal, Paul. Why? Like, why did the tribune respond so quickly? Why did he believe the boy so strongly? I don't know, really. But, but I, I wonder, in God's providence, if God knew exactly who to bring at just the right time in order to see Paul through to safety. You know, we don't see James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, coming and knocking on the door of the barracks. I don't think they would have let him in. We don't see Peter coming back into town to, to rescue Paul. God brings a boy, a youth, a child without guile, 
a child who cares about his, his uncle, apparently, who this tribune can't help but trust. I would call this an ordinary miracle. An ordinary miracle. Just the right person at just the right time. And in response to this seemingly chance encounter, Paul, who, who is in his cell, looking down, figuratively looking down the barrel of a gun, within hours, he is snatched from the hand of murderers and he's brought safely to Caesarea with the strength of half the Roman force, the garrison covering his back. And then here's what's left behind him. Forty dudes who are hungry and thirsty and now have to walk 75 miles over two days to get Paul. And so they all starve to death. No, they don't. <laughs> it's just funny to consider them. I mean, who, who bails first? Like, we are so hungry. He's so far away. It, there is actually kind of a rule in their vows. I don't know. It, it's basically like if a vow becomes impossible to fulfill, then you're allowed to break the vow. And it, it's pretty much impossible. Uh, army of 475 miles, not going to happen. Um, so think about this. Think about everything that God aligned in order to deliver Paul. This is what I just want us to reflect on this morning. This, these are very ordinary things, and yet so extraordinary what happened as a result of this. Number one, the nephew of Paul that we've never heard of, never heard of, just happens to overhear this plot. I don't know how that happened, but he overhears the plot against Paul. Secondly, we see the nephew somehow convinces the Romans to let him into the barracks, this heavily guarded barracks, when the city is very tense. There's a lot of violence in the city when this type of thing is going on. I want, I want you to ask some of our soldiers or security people if they're letting kids through. No. But somehow, the centurions, the guards, allowed this boy to come into the barracks when the Romans are on high alert. Thirdly, we see a centurion is willing to take the boy to the tribune at Paul's request. He's, he's willing to do it for whatever reason. Fourth, we see the tribune, the most important military official in Jerusalem. He takes an audience with this boy. He listens to him. He, he pulls him aside privately, and he believes him without hesitation. It's pretty amazing. The tribune, fifthly, within hours, orders an army to transfer Paul like a king one step closer to where God has told Paul he will go in Rome. As Paul rode out of town on a horse with an army at his disposal, what do you think was going through his head? I mean, if it were me, I would just be marveling. God, how did you do this? How did you, how did you pull this off? This wasn't Paul's plan. He had, he had hoped to go back to Jerusalem to, to convince some of the Jews to follow Jesus, his, that his brethren would come to know Christ. But when circumstances turned dark, when all hope seemed to be lost, when things were really uh, messed up and all the hope must have drained from Paul, God made a way. And, and God does this not through anything flashy or dramatic, but in real time through ordinary people for God's plan. Ordinary miracles. Verse 31, so the soldiers, according to their instruction, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. So if, if there's a map that you can look at, Antipatris is about halfway. So they go halfway through the night, about a day's journey over the course of the night. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. So halfway point, uh, 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, they turn and head back potentially to intercept anyone who is in pursuit. It would be a bad day if you were in pursuit of Paul. And Paul and his 70 riders, they continue swiftly another 30 to 40 miles to Caesarea. And verse 33, when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. 
On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Could be a while. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, a praetorium is like the tent or the living quarters of the general of the army, typically. But when we say Herod's praetorium, Herod the Great was king over this whole region of Judea and Caesarea. And so when Paul gets bunked in Herod's praetorium, you all need to know this. This is Herod's beach palace overlooking the coast. Think about what God has, God has done. Herod, the great enemy of, of baby Jesus that we read about. And here, in God's plan and God's providence, God snatches Paul out of the hands of murderers, leads him from certain death to within two days, he has rest, he has peace, he has protection as he awaits what should be a fair trial in Herod's beach house. It's, it's amazing what God has done. And I just think that Paul had to just be wondering at, at this, seeing no way out, knowing God had done this kind of thing for him before, but seeing no hope, no clarity from God how this was going to be accomplished. And God provides just the right provision at just the right moment for Paul's salvation. And so we could just breeze through this story, but this morning what I want us to do is this is, this is an invitation for us to consider our own lives and to consider from the scriptures, and from what we see here, how has God worked ordinary miracles in your life? How has God worked ordinary miracles in your life? How has he arranged circumstances or brought people into your life at just the right moment to encourage you, to set you on the right path, to, to continue to see God's plan and provision? Today, what this message is, is a call to worship a call to praise God. I don't want this, this message to end here. What I want us to do as we walk out of here and as I was seeking the Lord, I think what he desires for us to do as a church is to reflect on what he's done in each of our lives. And so maybe that means this afternoon you're going to take out a journal and you're going to think back, where have I seen God's hand in guiding me through this life? Where have I seen him show his goodness in the midst of my darkness? Maybe it's a conversation with your spouse over dinner where you just reflect and think back, what has God done? How has God worked ordinary miracles in your life? How has he done amazing things, often through very ordinary means? Any of you remember uh, what it was like to ride in one of those old school station wagons? If you were a child in the 80s or early 90s, you got that prized position, at least a few times, of sitting in the back seat of the station wagon. You know which direction it faced? Backwards. So weird. You couldn't see at all where you were going, but what you could see is how you got where you were going, right? You could see behind you the path that you had taken and how everything had come together to get you to where you were going. You might have gotten car sick as you did that, like I did, but uh, I want today to be like a station wagon experience where you look back on the winding path that the Lord has brought you on and think back on what he has done, his goodness in bringing you here today and, and take hope in that, take courage in that, that he still holds you in his hand. For me, I think back and I think about how, how the Lord saved my wife late in high school, how he led her to salvation and how he brought her into my life when I thought I had everything figured out. You know, I had a girlfriend, I was going to get married, had it all figured out. That fell apart. <laughs> and yet, at just the right time, at the only time in both of our lives when we were ready to be together, God brought us together. He allowed us to meet each other. I, I think back about his provision. 
in allowing uh, me to enter into ministry as kind people gave from their lives, from their pocketbooks, whatever it took to encourage and to help me. I think about people that he's brought into my life at just the right moment. Tim Stanton, a random teenager who grabbed me by the shoulder when I was a child as I was chasing after a soccer ball as a truck whizzed right in front of my face. He saved my life as a child. I think back on that, and it's just amazing. I think about how a God-fearing nurse named Hope sat beside my wife and, and was able to encourage her in the Lord as she was dealing with a miscarriage. I think about so many of you, so many of you in this room that God has brought here to this church for his mission right now. God has gifted you all tremendously. You could do pretty much anything anywhere, but think about the goodness of God in bringing us together as a community to accomplish even more. His mission of transforming you, of transforming Clifton, and, of tr- and transforming this area through the gospel, through you. It is amazing. And so you may be here this morning thinking, oh, Mark, all that sounds great, but why should I have trust and confidence in the Lord? I'm not so sure that he has a plan for my life. I'm not so sure that I can see that. And I would thank you for your honesty, and I would also just encourage you to do what I've asked everyone to do. Spend some quiet time alone with the Lord and say, God, show me. Reveal to my heart and mind how you've been with me, how you've led me to this point. Lord, reassure me that I'm in your hands. Where I've strayed from your will, Lord, bring me back. I can assure you that as you reflect, he will reveal to you a plan. And maybe this morning you're in a desperate spot and and life has been rough and you say, I just can't see it. I can't see how God has been with me. And I say this to you this morning. You are here now. And that is a miracle. God has brought you into a church, into a place where this morning you can turn to him, trust him, believe in him, begin to follow him. This morning may be the ordinary miracle that you need in order to repent of some things or maybe to give your life to Jesus for the very first time. Do not take this opportunity for granted.